You're listening to Don't Tell the Easter Bunny, a podcast celebrating the unsung festivities that won't be found on any normal calendar. This show is presented every two weeks by a mother-son duo who like to keep it safe for work. I'm Bryce, the son. I'm Misty, the mom. And you can reach out to us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny for Instagram and Facebook and at Don't Tell the EAS1 for Twitter. Or you can email us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. No special characters or space. Okay, let's hop to it. This is our first episode of Don't Tell the Easter Bunny. We recently went on a road trip. Of course, being in the car for a long time, we had to find something to do. And we decided to start listening to some podcasts. With that in mind, I was like, hey, it would be fun to start a podcast. And our family owns a company called Unboxing the Bazaar. And it's actually based around like wild, wacky, offbeat holidays. And I thought, okay, we already write the trivia for that, for the blog, and for the inserts that go into our boxes that we send out monthly. So why not take the trivia and make it into a fun podcast? And it's what happens when you introduce your mom to the podcasting (laughs) world. She designs the entire podcast. Ultimately, we want this podcast to inspire new traditions and celebrations that people can share with their friends and family, their neighbors, whoever they like to have a good time with. We travel a lot around the world, and something that we notice in other cultures they really sit around the family table. Food is a huge part of the culture. Mm-hmm. Playing outside, you know, not being on gadgets, electronics all the time, and talking about things. So I think that some of that has been lost in our culture. And it, you know, it's a great way if you have some trivia or some things that you can talk about at yeah, the table. Maybe get people back together. I'm hoping podcasts will do that, as well as the trivia that we send out. Even in the way of like holiday that we celebrate. We're going to be talking about very weird ones, ones that are maybe made by Hallmark or even <laughs> ones that are just made because they're in celebration of somebody who really helped start a movement. And I think that's something that we saw too when we were traveling. You would go to like one village and they would just have celebrations and they would be based around days or people or whatever, but it was constant celebrations and one town would have it, and then you would hike about 10 miles over to the next town, and they'd have another celebration going on. And the whole town comes together for the celebration. Every two weeks, we're going to present four different holidays in the upcoming two weeks that you can celebrate and do some trivia and just some hopefully fun stories, especially from our travels around the world. So what are your dates? I have two, June 4th, Hug a Cat Day, and the other, uh, June 9th. I have June 6th, which is National Yo-Yo Day, and June 10th, National Ice Tea Day, which I think is very fitting for our family because we are both Southern, but also we just happen to drink a lot of tea. Currently, I have Starbucks with me, a venti-sized tea. This should be a lot of fun because we decided that when we pick our days, We wouldn't tell each other about them, so this is uh, new for you guys and new for us. The trivia and facts that I'm hearing from Bryce right now, they'll be totally new to me, and he's hearing the same thing for me. There were some slips, but (laughs) overall, overall, we were able to keep it hush-hush. Yeah, 
I'm trying to keep it a secret around here is a little bit of a challenge, but yeah, we're able to do it. So, all right, so should I dive in? Yeah, go for it, Mom. All right, so um, my day, like I said, is Hug a Cat Day, and it's June 4th. And yes, I love to hug them, even if they tear me to pieces. Looking at some of the facts that I was able to come up with, I went to caster.com. My first set of facts are from there. So, Bryce, do you know what a group of kittens is called? A uh, purring machine. It's called a Kindle. Okay. That's right. <laughs> is that where the Amazon Kindle got its name? You know, I should have researched that and looked that up. Any of you know if that's how Kindle got its name from a group of kittens? Uh, follow us on our different social media accounts and put it in there. And a group of cats, though, is actually a different name. A bigger Kindle. Uh, sure. Actually, it kind of rhymes with one of your you know, favorite uh, animated things, Clowder. Oh, Clowder. <laughs> yeah, Chowder, Clowder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, anyway, Clowder. So, Kindle and a Clowder. So, hopefully, if you're ever on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, that ever comes up, you know, you can attribute it to uh, the White House. Abraham Lincoln domesticated four cats while in the White House, and one of them is actually named Tabby. But the interesting thing, so he loved cats, but there are three really well-known, like, courageous men that were totally scared of cats. Okay. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, maybe? No, no. Okay, so these aren't, I guess I should tell you, they aren't White House people. Okay. Just okay. In, in history in general. Um, didn't Albert Einstein have a cat, so not him. I'll go with Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> He was crazy. Maybe, but no, not on my list. Sorry. All right. So Napoleon. Okay. Julius Caesar. All right. I kind of find that interesting because it just seems like, you know, Roman and overseas, like over there, they sort of used to like cats. But, and Charles the Ninth. Okay. I imagine like Julius Caesar because of like the connection with just the ancient world and all that and how they regarded cats as kind of spiritual, omnipotent beings, maybe that was intimidating. Well, that's true, maybe. So, bringing up a good point, all the spiritual and stuff like that, so in ancient Egypt, where of course, they were definitely revered, humans shaved their eyebrows as a way of showing grief when a family cat Oh. Some of the top common breeds would be the Maine Coon. Of course, I love and have had in the past my largest Maine Coon ever. Um, How? How much did he weigh? He was 28 pounds. Yeah. And his name was Bubba T. It's, it's a fitting name. So. <laughs> so, and then uh, another top breed is actually Burmese. Kind of have an interesting story about that. We traveled to Myanmar a couple of years ago, originally called Burma, now mm-hmm. Myanmar. So if you know it more, it's Burma. Over the years, um, and actually way back in the 1930s, the Burmese cats kind of died off, and the few that were left bred with other uh, breeds of cats. So when they did that, they actually, in Burma itself, had no pure Burmese cities. So Bryce and I got a chance when we were in Myanmar to go to this place that was called the Inlay Heritage House. It's actually called Inlay Lake. Is the, I don't know if it's the town, but it's the big lake. Yeah, imagine basically a large surface of water where the buildings are actually on wooden stilts for the most part inside the lake. And they have a little few islands here and there, and that's where the cat sanctuary was. Is it the women who have the 
the gold rings mm-hmm. around their yeah. neck and kind of stretch them up. They are there, located in the lake. The lake is humongous, and if you go further down, a lot of people don't actually go like um, way down in the lake. They kind of stay in that little village area. But if you go down, they have a whole island just built for these cats. The Inlay Heritage Society, basically, uh, there's philanthropists helping them that owns a hotel on the lake there. They decided that they wanted to bring back the population. So in 2009, they actually went over to Australia and the UK, got seven pure Burmese cats and brought them back, started to breed them again. So they literally have this little island that is dedicated. They have a little area that they actually dedicate to people who like to do art if they come to the country and want to write a song about it, a poem, write a book about it, then it's kind of almost like a collab or yeah. hostel sort of thing. Yeah, get away for solitude yeah. and all that. So they like let you stay there, but it's very small and very minimalist. The cats really rule <laughs> the place as compared to the people. Yeah, so the other half of the, well, I probably not even half, probably the oh. other 90% yeah. of the island yeah. is the cat house. And it is just amazing when you walk in there. Once again, they're trying to breed them, and there are cats everywhere, and they have free reign of inside, outside. They even have a bridge that goes a little bit over the lake to, to a smaller little island where they just have all these houses for them, soft, really squishy pillows that they yeah. can lay on and stuff, and all these cat climbing trees, and it was it was just amazing. It's so, a cat's paradise there. It definitely fits in with Hug Your Cat Day because that's all they did with us. They climbed on our backs, and Bryce actually had a lot of fun with them. And if you could tell them about the, the Belongi. Yeah, the Belongi. Yeah, so uh, kind of think of maybe like a sari, but that's more of an Indian culture kind of garment. A longi is a conservative piece of garment that men wear in Myanmar. And you wrap it around the bottom of yourself, around your waist, and you tie it into a knot. But basically, you kind of got this lower dress part <laughs> to yourself now. And it's really cool if you do wear one of those, especially if you're a foreigner, because it's really a sign of respect. And people will just like smile at you and have a, want to come talk with you because they're like, wow, this person actually really trying here. And it was interesting, too, because not many Americans actually go over there, so it's kind of like, we're superstars, and then with Bryce wearing Melange, which is dressed in both the men and women over there, they were very excited about Yeah, that. but when it came to the cat sanctuary, I was wearing Melange, and I went crisscross applesauce, but I still kind of like made this hammock with Melange, if you can imagine that. Like, the fabric just spread out between my legs. And I got maybe, like, three cats that came on to me to just lie there. It was a great time. They're so soft and so docile. I wish we could have adopted some of them. And uh, we, we didn't want to leave, but it was getting dark, and we have to kind of get back off the lake while it's still light out. We were kind of uh, probably along to go along, but we probably could have stayed forever. But it's interesting because they do actually have an adoption program too there. They're big, really big into the adopting and really push that as well. But because they are breeding them and trying to get them back, of course, we can't adopt them all out. My 
research. Uh, they only adopt three cats a year. Okay. So that's kind of interesting. And the same lady, uh, Chow Su, has basically cat mom. She's taking sure. care of them for you, 10 years. You would years. love that position. I know. I would love it. We did not get to meet her when we were there. But it was kind of neat because when we got there, we were running a little bit later since it was on the far side of the lake. And they do sort of have hours, but it was kind of nice because they still let us in. And then I think we were there an hour or more, and they didn't say anything. You know, they were like, we have to lock up or anything like that. But how you can support them if you do go over there. They actually don't ask for any donations. They do have a little small shop with some things that are kind of made by artisans in the area. And they ask you to, you know, well, they don't even ask you. But if you ask to donate, they will tell you, no, we don't accept donations. And so they sell those. And they also have a kind of coffee house, dessert shop. But yeah, great cause. And I think it's perfect for how your cat day. Oh, perfect. Oh, I didn't even need that. Uh-huh. See? Hey, your cat face is kind of obviously a made-up day. <laughs> it definitely had to be registered somewhere, but at the same time, you can really make it your own. Right? Yeah. Is there any way that people should try to celebrate 100 Cat Day? Well, depending on what hat you hug, you might need a lot of Band-Aids. Yeah, right. for that, yeah. right? I know that our blog writer... Just played not to hug a tiger that day. Oh, but they're so fluffy <laughs> and they got big paws. So you can go visit them on safari, but probably not hug them. Cat, if you don't have a cat and you can give it a great home, go adopt one. And hey, do it even if you're allergic because I definitely am and I still snuggle up with all these little guys around here. Yeah. Well, your turn. Yeah. That was fun. That's a good start. Uh, let's talk about National Yo-Yo Day. Again, National Yo-Yo Day is June 6th. It's really kind of celebrating the memory of this American entrepreneur from the early 1900s named Donald F. Duncan. He did. Ooh, great segue for Donald Duck later. Uh, yeah. yeah. There you go. <laughs> Half of our uh, podcast is dedicated to Donald. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Ronald McDonald will appear later. <laughs> He actually didn't invent the yo-yo, nor did he really coin the term, but he helped to popularize it in America, especially for generations to come. Did you have any yo-yos when you grew up, Mom? I did, but I was not good at them. I think I got them more for prettiness than just, uh-huh. you know, having a yo-yo, basically. Yeah. I could get it to go down and up, but beyond that... Hey, that's so impressive. Like, did you keep it in the position where it was at, or did it kind of, like, rattle around? Yeah, no, I was, I was thinking about, like, letting it go, and it would come back up in the same direction. But it would, like, pretty much go, come back up, like, grab it, and then drop it again. Sure. Well... No, nothing fancy. <laughs> I remember you getting me at least one yo-yo in my life, maybe a couple, but they were always those classic ones that were kind of automated, so you didn't have to have any technique for it. Yeah. Um, but they were definitely a good time. But I think most people at some point in their life, I can pick up on the story that the yo-yo was probably an ancient warrior's tool from China. I mean, it, it okay. you've <laughs> never heard that? No, I have not heard oh, that one man. before. There are kind of like these ideas that China and maybe even Egypt were areas where warriors would go ahead and use a yo-yo to attack 
people, but also animals for food. What it turns out to be is that kind of like there's no evidence for any of that. It's all speculation. What archaeologists can prove about the yo-yo has been revealed through ancient Greek terracotta pots from the 500 BC. The interesting idea is that it was actually a toy back then anyhow. Though there's no real uh, identity except for, you know, kind of the yo-yo going up and down and all that. France and India later on would go ahead and get it into their culture. And same thing like you, it just goes up and down. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm like sitting here trying to think about a warrior. Like, how would they even think that a warrior could do it like David and Goliath and just throw it and when it gets to the end, it'd be like the slingshot or something in the rock? You're not completely off from that. <laughs> Actually, in diving more into what the history of a yo-yo was, the Philippines actually becomes a really big part of the yo-yo kind of mythos. The Philippines has a story of hunter-gatherers using basically a rock tied to a piece of string, and the hunter-gatherers would climb on top of like, trees or anything that was high ground, and they would keep trying to hit the animals below them. If they missed, they would actually just go ahead and pull it up with the string. Okay, I can kind of see you go there, but also it kind of sounds like a fishing rod or something. I mean, it's, you know, uh, uh, semantic. But what's also more interesting about the Philippines is there are a few more concrete aspects to the Philippines story. There is an idea that the yo-yo actually comes from a Tagalog word, which is one of the ethnic languages of the Philippines. There are translations online saying that it means come, come, or come back, yo-yo, no. I think it's maybe a little bit fickle trying to associate a word like that with translations like that. So we're not really going to say anything definitive about it right now. But what we can talk about is that this man named uh, Pedro Flores. Pedro Flores was from the Philippines, and he moved to the United States in 1900s early 1900s, to uh, go ahead and try to get a law degree. But as the cookie crumbles, became a bellhop in San Francisco instead. But he always had been playing with this toy, the yo-yo, in the Philippines, and he decided to tinker with it a bit. Uh, flip science indicates that instead of simply trying to ax tying the axle to the end of a string, he doubled the length of the string and lifted it around the axle. And this design caused the loop string to have greater stability and suspension of movement. So basically, like, when you make a yo-yo go down and it needs to keep staying down and spinning, this is because of him. So he wasn't, like, a physicist or anything? No, no. <laughs> he was a very innovative person. He actually took this technology that he made or this redesign of the traditional yo-yo and started his own yo-yo manufacturing company in 1928. But in 1929, the person that we have referred to earlier, Donald F. Duncan, he was a competitor to Pedro Flores. He decided to buy out Flores' company and the trademark for the name Yo-Yo, 
so that he could go ahead and sell it. All the Dunkin' Yo-Yos that have their Dunkin' name, he really did create it. They were originally <laughs> Floris's uh, yeah. Yo-Yos. Very interesting. And actually, Floris's Yo-Yos have the slogan, if it isn't a Floris, it isn't a Yo-Yos. <laughs> So he really, yeah, that didn't age well, did it? No. I think it's an interesting spot to also talk about how the acquisition utilized the Filipino history to visa the marketing campaign. I found a 1971 New York Times article where they referred to Duncan as having been the inventor for a slipstring yo-yo that Flores had made. And I'm not going to say that Duncan was actually the one who said he was the sole inventor for it. It could have been just for journalistic research. To be fair, Duncan probably couldn't have done anything to have changed this <laughs> quote from New York Times because it was actually his obituary that they mentioned it. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Duncan really did play up this kind of Filipino history that really is conjecture. He also hired Filipinos specifically to perform for these yo-yo shows that he would go to market, which might be an issue, especially looking at it from today's lenses. But also it's interesting to see that Flores, when he owned the company, and even when he was working with Duncan and became a promotional marketer for Duncan Boys, he also really tried to get the story, Filipino story, inspired and out to the American public. It's kind of like, what was he doing with that, too, you know? Was he trying to help benefit his community that was living in America? So all this controversy around this little original wooden round thing with a string, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And what was really popular for the marketing was even outside of the Filipino aspect were these competitions that Duncan and Flores would put on. They made it a national-wide thing, and they had a unique idea that the yo-yo could actually be in everybody's toy. If you were older, if you were younger, if you were a boy, a girl, a man, a woman, no matter what ethnic background you were from, a person could go into these community-regulated events really trying to master the yo-yo, which are even going on until these days. When I was researching all this, I found a YouTube video titled How to Run a Yo-Yo Contest from the 1970s by the Dumping Toy Company. And imagine kind of like an old printable photo that needed to be colorized in a chemical bath, but waited in light sensitive mixture for a bit too long. So there are these like streaks of magenta and red and deep blue greens. There's white concrete that starts to get tinged with yellow. Really TV kind of lines that are like, notice the wrist action and <laughs> take a close look at how the yo-yo spins. And they explain that like you got to do uh, 10 different steps and that you have two different tries to make these steps and tricks. And basically... If there was a tie between two people at these competitions, they would just basically keep yo-yoing until the other person messed up or got tired. And you know, like walking the dog, right? Yeah. That type of trick. There are other tricks 
that have just as creative names, but maybe are kind of bewildering a bit to the mind, trying to figure out how it would work in a stunt, kind of like you were saying, how does a warrior, how can they look at a yo-yo and think, oh yes, this was a warrior's <laughs> Well, there is also one known as a creeper, which is a lot less creepy than it sounds. <laughs> it's kind of like walking the dog, you're just trying to make the yo-yo walk along the cement or wherever you are. Okay. Because it's creeping yeah, along. Yeah, that would make sense. Kind of like even a plinky, how it creeps. Yeah, exactly. But, okay, that would make sense. There's other ones that like Sleepy Beauty, but this one, this one might get you a little bit. It's called Skin the Cat. Aww. I know, I'm sorry. I had to bring that up right after Hug the Cat Day. And it's kind of like you make it go around your arm or something. But I just kind of wanted to end on like the idea that Really, during the 1940s and 60s, and it was before your timeline. <laughs> I'm not calling you out. Uh-huh. But it really was a big phenomenon for yo-yos and these yo-yo competitions. In the Atlantic Special Columnist Report, it estimated that nearly every child in America played with a yo-yo between the 1940s and 60s, probably one manufactured by Duncan company that famously sold 45 million yo-yos in 1952 in a country with only 40 million children. So you still got them going on. Last year was, you know, the world championship. I think they do that every year, but this guy named Evan Nagao won, and he was from Hawaii. And I guess a lot of these big yo-yo artists they go ahead and make their own yo-yos. They sign up with some kind of a company and make performance yo-yos with them. We think of the yo-yo as kind of like this novelty toy, which is interesting considering the lengthy history it's had, but it really has had some kind of a novel inspiration in each generation. There's been ball bearings that have replaced the center of a yo-yo to make it frictionless, and so allows you to spin more. They added beads in it to make noise and then they get lights where they start to light up. I kind of also just want to throw in the final few facts that are not exactly related to the yo-yo, but I thought it was interesting that Duncan, he is also a big reason why we have parking meters around. He bought our company and started selling to municipal government to go ahead and actually start putting parking meters around to earn taxes. <laughs> Definitely found ways to make money, huh? <laughs> he did, he did. And I guess like the best way to celebrate this day, if you're not champion like Evan is, <laughs> just go ahead and go on YouTube and look up some of their videos because they got some crazy routines. There's or some really good people out there. Oh yeah, definitely. Or even look up the commercial that I was talking about, <laughs> the promotional marketing video by Duncan. But it, it reminded me when you were describing that with all these weird like psychedelic colors, different like little things that are thrown at you to make you really want to get that yo-yo. And then you get the yo-yo and it hangs on the string yeah. <laughs> for most people. It's funny, I, I play the yo-yo much. I don't know if it was because it was frustrating to learn as much as it is yeah i know so i don't know if that's why i wasn't as interested in it i did play with slinky there's nothing to that you know it slings down the stairs 
And the funny thing is, even though it was way before my time, Jack, I still, over mm-hmm. the summer, played a lot with Jack. Forgot about that toy. <laughs> I know. So very, and that and um, pickup sticks. Oh, pickup sticks were definitely. Yeah, I mean, both of those are way before my time. They're very simplistic toys. You know, I look at these people that have such simplistic ideas, like the yo-yo or jacks or pickups. Pick up sticks. All you do is dump them out of a container and then try and pick them up without moving the others. I think originally the idea of pickup sticks was probably child labor. You got to go pick up that firewood <laughs> and bring it over here. Yeah, but you can't move the rest of the firewood, No, you right? can't. No, That's no. it. Well, that's interesting. I know you told me there was a controversy about the yo-yo, and since we weren't sharing facts, that was one fact that was hard to keep secret, but Bryce kept it secret. I, I want to hear now about Donald Duck. You do see it? It leads into it. Donald Duck, or Donald Duncan, you had there, and Donald Duck, and, and Donald Duncan sounds like he definitely knew how to make money. Might have been a little underhanded, though. Is that what Donald Duck is about? Well, yeah, because actually Donald Duck, so uh, Donald Duck Day is the ninth. I'll get into that in a second here. Uh, June 9th, I should say. And he was created because Mickey Mouse was so positive, happy, popular, and all that. (laughs) They actually create. I wouldn't think of... Walt Disney is doing this because to me he seems upbeat and wants to create all this fun stuff. But he specifically created Donald Duck to be negative, grumpy, and totally opposite of Mickey Mouse. So he's like <laughs> the straight man of to Mickey. Like he's trying I to guess, pull him back down to earth. I guess except sometimes sometimes a little bit more negative. Although I also have to say he's not as negative as like Eeyore. He was not negative. He just had a different (laughs) uh, mindset. My favorite Disney character is... Eeyore. Eeyore. I would love to do Eeyore, but it's not Eeyore's day. It's Donald Duck Day. But like I said earlier, we would be remiss if we didn't do something on Disney for a couple different reasons. Because uh, we do live in Orlando, so I've kind of grown up on Disney. But not only grown up on Disney just because we live here, I literally grew up on Disney. My mom was one of the original tour guides at Disney World, Florida, Orlando, Florida, when it opened. And my dad was one of the original Jungle Book skippers. And they met met at a Disney party. Yeah, they actually met at a Disney party. So I have truly grown up on Disney. Since then, we've had a lot of family members work out there. Kind of a thing you do in Orlando, work at the theme parks. You have um, to have at least somebody that you know that works out there. Yeah, or at least at one of the theme parks. I actually did not work at Disney or at the other theme parks, but we've had many family members working at Disney. Still have some out there right now. Um, so Donald Duck, it's interesting how June 9th came about for Donald Duck. Okay. Normally, well, maybe it's like that because it's a birthday uh-huh. or their first appearance or something like that, but it actually was not either of those. It was his first on-screen debut. Okay. So there are a couple things that happened before that, obviously his birthday and his first appearance, but his first actual on-screen debut was June 9th, 1934. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah. He was in Silly Symphonies in the, oh my gosh, I lost it. Oh, in The Wise Little Hen is what it was called. His first actual appearance was um, in May 1934, 
in a copy of Good Housekeeping magazine. I absolutely remember Good Housekeeping magazine, not because of 1934. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, but, you know, um, he was actually promoting the Silly Companies and the Wise Little Hen back a month before he actually did his first, you know, quote, on-screen debut. Okay. So his first appearance was actually a month before in, in that magazine. So I find this extremely interesting. People have way too much time on their hands. Not like we don't here, you know. We're researching wacky holidays. But, um, okay, so where I'm getting my facts from right now was an article by Kate Herbland with Mental Floss. So they kind of tracked down his birthday, which I think is very bizarre that people would go and look at all his old cartoons to kind of come up with his birth date. So, like, canonically his birthday in the world of Disney. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't when he was strong or anything like that. And it, they just kind of gathered this from listening to all these, you know, different things. And they kind of gathered also, like, his family heritage and some of his siblings and things like that. Um, so it's just kind of weird that people would go back. But, okay, so I kind of want to read this whole paragraph to you. And okay, I'm waiting go for to it. kind of tell you the facts, but I, I think this is so interesting. Do His birthday is March 13, 1914. So he's, like, youngish. Yeah, so, well, so when he debuted, was, as I said, 34, right? So he was around, quote, 20. Yeah. <laughs> you think like ducks have that same thing where dogs are seven years as compared to Yeah, I don't know. So he was at what, 140 at this Maybe point? So, yeah. <laughs> okay, so traditionally a character's first appearance is in a, in a cartoon marks its birthday. We kind of talked about that. But in a late 1940s cartoon, it was revealed that Donald was born on March 13th. In its authorized biography published in 1941, we find out not only was he born on March 13th, but do you know what day of the week that was? Uh, Wednesday. Think about the 13th. Friday. It was Friday the 13th. Creepy. Yeah, but it kind of goes along with our, you know, holidays here. Sure. Some dedicated fans from all the instances of Friday, March 13th, and using other clues from the duck birth, I like how they call it, the yeah. duck birth, Determined that Donald was born on March 13, huh. 1914. So basically, they had to do not even research, but just watching all these things. That were sure, yeah. Very, very, very odd to me. But uh, so very, very interesting. He is six years younger than Mickey Mouse. And I don't know, though, if that is definitely for sure and goes by the people that found his birthday, but that's what they're saying. Um, that was actually with economictimes.com said that. He has um, actually starred in, do you know how many feature films? 30? <laughs> yeah, not that high. I was going to say like 15. Yeah, seven. Oh, wow. But, that's really low. But that's actually more than any of his Disney counterparts. Oh, even Mickey? Yeah. yeah. So I think that's kind of interesting. And his first starring role then, so he did have that, his first on-screen appearance, but that was in, uh, in the Silly Company. So his first actual starring role was in 1937, and it was in a, a short, it was made in a cartoon, and it was called Don Donald. And I don't know if this is where they kind of got the three amigos from, okay. because it was about his adventures in Mexico, and it included him riding a burro, which goes poorly. 
Of course. I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. It's mainly uh, surrounding him, but it's also for him searching for his love, which actually was not Casey back at the time. Oh. It was, and I cannot find my notes on this. Poor Daisy. She's probably jealous. I know. So, that's horrible. I don't have my notes on it. It was like, Don, I think it was Donna. Anyway, you guys can correct us, you know, on our social media, and I'll correct it next time or I'll go find it, because I actually had it here, but I can't find it. So now, what, another thing interesting, he was in a film that won an Oscar for Best Short Subject of Cartoons in 1943. Back then, I know a lot of the the characters that Disney created, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and stuff, were actually kind of... I want to say propaganda, but they were used, you know, during war times and stuff like that. So this one was, I'm going to butcher this, you probably would be better since you are uh, the linguist, but Der Führerstaat? I don't know German, <laughs> but yeah, that sounds um, So basically, you know, it was during uh, Germany World War II, but it did win an Oscar. And very interesting, and he does actually have a star on the walk of fame as well. And then the last thing about him, oh, well, actually, before I tell you that, so he has a twin sister all these years. I never knew he had a twin. And does she also start with a D? No, I did not. <laughs> so it's funny because it depends, she's either Thelma, Stella, or Dumbella. Dumbella's not a very nice name, <laughs> I know. So, but I guess. She kind of, well, of course you have Huey, Dewey, and Louie. They would have had to either come from a brother or a sister. Yeah. Um, Donald, so, but. Because they're the nephews. Yeah, they're yeah. the nephews. But I guess they don't, I mean, they sort of can't got it from that. They sort of just kind of pieced it together like his birthday, narrowed it down. Some sites narrowed it down, but this one said it was one of three. But because you don't really see her, I, I don't know where they came up with this, but, um, a Dutch cartoon purports that the reason you never see her, never really hear about her, and she's not around, she became an astronaut. Okay, yeah. yeah. First uh, female duck astronaut. <laughs> it's an odd thing, especially for that time frame. I would think to say that, you know, especially a female being an astronaut, but hey, you know. Yeah, you can start. Yeah. The duck, I said, was created because he wanted a Bromby character to counteract uh, Mickey. But it was also created because he overheard this guy, Clarence Nash, reading a Mary Had a Little Lamb poem in a duck voice. He remembered that and he was like, I want to create a character off of that and I want my, you know, grumpy character, so let's make him the duck. So Clarence Nash, he has been voiced by three different people, Clarence Nash. Tony Anselmo and Daniel Rose. But Clarence Nash was the original, did it from 1934 to 85 for a long time, and he didn't just die off or anything and they had to replace him. He actually trained the others on how to do the voice. So he was like the sole bearer of knowledge, really. And yeah. so he had to transmit that to the others. And he was the original one, as a what, OG? Is what we call it or something? Ooh, you <laughs> I know. They had to use a special microphone. Uh, it's in the Newman TLM 170 to smooth out the flats and the splats in his voice. That'd be hard. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting because when I was researching, I thought in all the years 
person's been around with me, he knew that I have a double duck voice, but he didn't know that. I did not know. <laughs> she walked into the room and just started talking about Donald Duck, and she automatically went to her duck, uh, Donald Duck voice. I'm like, what? So I can't really say a lot of words, but I can definitely, like, when you can't understand Donald Duck and he's really, like, um, arguing with someone <laughs> and, his, and his feisty voice, I can definitely do that. So, well, that was just rude. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That in pigeon voice. Otherwise, I don't really have many uh, impersonations yeah. that I can do. But I was surprised he didn't know that, and I think it kind of, yeah, I think he's some friend of the table. That's probably just glad I didn't do that in front of a bunch of people. No, I feel like <laughs> if I had known it, I would have been making you do it every dinner with my roommates back in San Diego or anywhere <laughs> with my friends because I'm just like, look at this thing my mom can do. I can't do it. <laughs> And uh, now you know that I can voice Donald Duck, so, if you don't need a word. <laughs> so why does he wear pants? Uh, you know, I did, I did not find that in my research. I did find, I don't know what year, but he actually changed color shirts. and From like a black to a blue, right? Yeah, I think that's what it was. I did, What I remember more in my research, they talked about his bow tie, and that it was white sometimes and red sometimes. Oh, and the interesting thing about the three caballeros, so we do uh, 5Ks as well, walk them, not run them. But, uh, but anyway, they actually had a, what did we, it was just the Halloween, oh, it was the Garfield. Garfield. It was Garfield Halloween 5K, and my dad did it with us. So we had three generations walking that particular one, and we decided on the three caballeros. We had to make the outfits, including Donald and Bryce's bottle. And we didn't have questions about the color of his bow tie. Was it like a black one? Was it red? Where did we have to kind of like improvise? Yeah. So we just kind of did the traditional what you would see Donald Duck in the parks right now. Yeah. All right. And well, I also have the last one. I also have one more fact about oh. yo-yos because <laughs> you made me think about it. The yo-yo was the first toy to be sent into space. Ooh. It was what? Year. It was in 1985, and NASA included a yo-yo that's in the Discovery gear, and when it was set in motion without gravity, it would never have stopped if somebody hadn't grabbed onto it and actually physically stopped it. Yeah. Was it spinning? Do you know if it was spinning on the string, or it was just they just like spun it in general? I assume the string was attached to it, but I don't know if they actually did the physical motion of right. the yo-yo to get it going. Well, we're on to our final holiday, yeah. and it is National Ice Tea Day. So, okay, National Ice Tea Day, right? <laughs> why would anybody do that? Honestly, I don't know why. It was because of our 100 degree weather, like we're having right now. That's yeah, why. I actually found a lot of interesting facts on ice tea in general, a lot more than I thought I ever would have found. Maybe to start off with it. You probably are thinking like, okay, iced tea, probably a modern invention because you have to have refrigeration and easy access to ice for iced tea, and you'd actually be pretty right on that. The story of iced tea does parallel the manual and mechanical and automatic refrigeration systems. 
prior to anything like we would think of as an ice box, they had giant ice sheds that people would put ice that was picked off of like glaciers and frozen ponds. So you would have to be in an area, first of all, that would get snow or freezing temperatures for the water and be able to transport that to these ice houses that would then be covered on top and around the perimeter of the ice block with sawdust. So me, I don't know how I would feel about having ice that's been covered in sawdust. Dry wood in my ice seat does not sound very, very tasty yeah. at all. <laughs> Well, if you're a hamster. But actually, in the 1700s, they were already making recipes that included iced tea. They were kind of a lot more like the punctuals that might be at a prom that have a bunch of football players around it and not well supervised by the chaperones. There is a lot of liquor going on in these tea punches. They had green tea for the most part, and it would be the base of the uh, punch bowls or just tea punches because it has this instringent flavor to it, so these kind of like bitter tones to a tea. But with adding the, the alcohol into it, you get this very high in sugar content now in the bowl. So it kind of like balances that. The one of the most popular ones is the green tea, pineapple juice, Jamaican rum, and champagne with some ice that's been served. So, obviously they have... Is there have, any tea actually in it? It might be like a little percentage here and there, but... Yeah. Uh, and decidedly, I didn't really think about this or even try to imagine it, but historicists really consider ice tea to be kind of an American convention. You know, like, yeah, you got these punch holes, right? And Britain definitely was serving them up, but really in the 1800s, there were more and more recipes being made that were non-alcoholic, and that, that was probably due to the temperance movement, where they really are claiming this is in 1904 at the World's Fair in St. Louis, there was a man by the name of Richard Blackington. He was a vendor at the World's Fair. And as the story goes, there were a bunch of hot tea batches that he had, and he was trying to sell off. But because it was the middle of summer in St. Louis, Missouri, they were definitely not getting any clients. So what he did was go ahead and put some ice into it, and it becomes a big seller. Did you know that at the World's Fair in 1904, the ice tea kind of like was also alongside this inception of hamburgers, hot dogs, cotton candy, ice cream, jello, peanut butter. There were all these food items that came out of this World's Fair. And it's interesting because they almost seem like summer items, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's also one more aspect to all these food items. They are very American. You know, yeah, hot dogs, iced tea, <laughs> but each and every one of them also have a story that's attached to a particular person that was at the fair. Either they're selling it or they were the ones who created it. They are all also related to some kind of story about overcoming adversity and obstacles. 
So, like, with the iced tea one, you know, he wasn't selling the hot tea, and he threw some ice in. Wow, genius. <laughs> Became a great selling uh, product then. But also, uh, there is a hot dog. So, uh, reportedly, Antoine Buchtefanger? Yeah, we're not good with German. <laughs> See our German language. Antoine Sausage was now being sold in a split bowl after his customers could call the plates. <laughs> and his plates were actually plastic glove that he handed out to everybody and they would have to hold the sausage. Oh, I know. So, <laughs> sanitary, right? <laughs> and so that's the original history of, you know, a ham or a hot dog. And with the hamburger, too, the man was named Uncle Fletcher Davis. And Davis was a potter, and he had a stall there. But the story goes, he wasn't selling pottery, so he went ahead and wanted to start selling hamburgers, or just brown meat sandwich. And reportedly, his stall kind of went up without being regulated. There's a good reason that that wouldn't have happened, especially because at this particular World's Fair, there is a big focus on hygienic practices. But really, kind of all of these stories are myths. They are easily debunked by looking at more and more research. Probably the only one that actually was a true accidental spark of genius was Ernest A. Hamwee's Hamwee's ice cream cone because he was basically this pastry seller and nearby him was an ice cream vendor that had also run out of vessels to put ice cream in. There's a lot of things running out at this World's Fair and to help out this guy he went ahead and rolled up a waffle-like kind of pastry. It wasn't like a Belgian waffle wasn't German, which a lot of people think it was, but he was actually Syrian. So he had folded one of them up and then placed the ice cream in there. But again, that probably wasn't also the first time that a waffle cone was started. There were independent times in Germany and elsewhere in America where people had done this. And in fact, actually, the only thing that was actually probably shown at the World's Fair that was original and actually introduced there without much fanfare was Jello. The gelatin proje- uh, product with the Jello brand was sold there and displayed there and actually won a golden award, apparently, along with some kind of a bourbon. What <laughs> the combination Jello and bourbon? You combine the two and you got it. Yeah, the Jello shots, right? Well, kind of looking more at Blickenden's story about making ice tea, almost practically all of it is false or has been taken into some account erroneously. For one, he was certainly not the inventor of ice tea, as we talked about before. There were a lot of recipe books at this time that were producing recipes for ice tea. But he also wasn't the first one to serve the ice drink at a World's Fair. Uh, the 1893 Chicago's World's Fair, or the Columbian Exposition, had a vendor on the books that was selling ice tea. And Blackenden accidentally pouring up ice, which has kind of been integrated into the story, like, oh, he just 
happened to kind of hit an ice bucket and it fell in. That That's completely false, too. Even just putting ice into the tea was a false conception. Uh, he was a shrewd businessman who saw that hockey wasn't going to cut it this time around. And so what he did was he put the jugs of, jugs of hot tea on top of cold metal pipe. And he let you know, gravity basically pull the liquid through the pipe and have a certain amount cut. But it kind of made me wonder why, like, why all this mythology behind the food at this World's Fair? In the article I was reading, it said the real legacy of the fair is that for a few brief moments in a single place, it captured an entire culture of eating that was being remade for the modern world. Again, this is like going from 1800s to early 1900s. There is still a lot of immigration going on in America, and the food landscape was truly changing. People, when they first go to the world's fair and they start seeing things that are new to them, it's novel. It's innovative and so there's kind of maybe this like conflation of okay i see a hot dog for the first time it has to be a world's fair item which i thought was really interesting some just random facts that i found off the fact sheet by the e association of the usa we drink about a three point estimated 3.8 billion gallons of tea in America per year, and about half of the American populace actually drinks it at least on a given day. 84% of the tea consumed is black tea. And I thought, as for us, we're Florida natives, and we're Southerners, right? I thought we couldn't really talk about a tea segment without talking about sweet tea. Yeah, <laughs> not sweetened tea, right? It has to be sweet. Yeah, pe- people don't understand that. So when we travel all over, and especially in the United States, and we ask if they have sweet tea, they'll always be like, oh, we have tea, and you can add sugar to it. It is not the same no, we're, thing. We're not going to yeah. add two Splenda packets to a tea that's in front of us. Yeah, no, it's, it's totally different. Sweet tea has to be sweet tea. Well, I found an interesting article. It was by Adrian Miller, basically talking about what makes sweet tea a quintessential item for Southerners. What is it that makes it so Southern? There's kind of an interesting line of where sweet tea is consumed, because you might say sweet tea is Southern, but it's really not. It is in particular states that do have a connection to each other, but not all of them have the same connection. So like Texas, it's only East Texas that drinks it. It's only South Virginia that drinks it. It's only the North of Florida that drinks it. For us, it's kind of hard sometimes when we go out to a restaurant to order sweet tea because they might not have it. It might be a Yankee-style iced tea that you can sweeten up with some Splenda. But... Once more, on top of that, I was trying to find a little bit more out about, like, what is it that makes it so culturally foundational to a Southerner's diet? A lot of people also pointed out that Louisiana doesn't do sweet tea, and that's probably because they're Catholic, and that the way you can trace, like, the region for sweet tea drinkers also matches up correlations with Baptists in their population. 
they're not just saying that Baptists, you know, were, are the only ones who drink sweet tea, but it is interesting to see that entire state that we think of as being Southern does not do sweet tea. And a little bit more into, like, also a cultural kind of identifier, when McDonald's decided to go ahead and sell sweet tea at all of their locations nationwide, it was kind of a controversy. Basically, people were like, oh, no, they're taking an item that's all about hospitable and warm. You don't want it to be standardized, first of all, because it's all about the individual, like your mom, your grandma. Somebody special has put the effort and attention into making a sweet tea. But if you're giving it to a corporation, you're going to go at least a standardized way. Because of that, there was a little bit of an outcry for it. I personally like their sweet tea. It's not the best sweet tea, but it's decent. It's sweet. Yeah. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah, if you yeah. need like that kind of fixing, then you're good to go. And yeah, apparently also each state kind of has like its own sweetness threshold, but also throw a wrench in something. Canada only does sweet tea. They only sell sweet tea and it's very hard to find unsweetened. I was talking with my friend Sam who lives in Quebec and he's like, yeah, you know, we you know, don't drink it all the time, but if you want one, it's there. Hence why we're going there this time. We're, guess, we're gonna get our fill of sweet tea. But it's nasty, apparently. So it's kind of more back to okay, it's Sweden iced tea instead of good, simple syrup poured into a brewing hot tea. Boiled with a whole bag of sugar. That's the best. Oh, yeah. It has to be diabetes induced. Now, okay, so this was one thing that also slipped when I was mentioning seeds. You previously were just talking about our projects and all that. And I blurted out, did you know Long Island Iced Tea doesn't have any tea in it? It has tea in the name. So I decided to look up what is it that makes a Long Island Iced Tea. And it's five different liquors. It's tequila, vodka, rum, triple second gin. But it also has a splash of Coke in it. And that's what gives the color to it to make it look like a tea. But the flavors together... I guess, apparently make it taste somewhat like a tea. It really doesn't. But it has something there. But, you know, after now, since I didn't know your facts and stuff, you were talking about the punch bowls at the beginning and all that, I could see where maybe Long Island tea came from that, possibly. Maybe it was from that. Nobody quite knows what the origin story is. There's a few of them. But personally, my favorite one was during Prohibition era, they decided to make a drink that looked like iced tea. So if anybody were to walk up like a cop, they would be like, ah, oh, yes, I'm enjoying this nice, cool, refreshing black iced tea. I think that was it for my tea spiel. I guess the best way to experience National Iced Tea Day is obviously to get you a glass of iced tea. It doesn't have to be sweet tea. But not if you sweeten it yourself. you got to look up a recipe for true oil and the sugar. Well, this was a blast. A lot of fun. Yeah, it was nice just 
hearing different facts about like the whole duck that I never knew and twin sister. I think that was that one. Um, Were there any photos of her? You know, actually, I didn't. That was the only photo that came up on any of the sites. That's really. baby. I, I know, I know. So, and like I said, I can't even remember the if that was his first love. So, yeah. So, if you guys like know for sure his uh, twin sister's name, then uh, you know, ping us on social media or email us, and yeah. And also, if you know her her name, because I have it in the notes here, but I am totally missing that. And if you guys drink sweet tea anywhere else outside of South United States or Canada, please let us know because I definitely thought it was a very specific, localized kind of story. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining. We'll catch you again in two weeks with a few more holidays that you can celebrate with anybody you want to choose to celebrate with. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thank you for joining us in our hop through these silly and strange celebrations. We'll be back again in two weeks with another assortment of holidays to inspire new traditions. You can follow us at Don't Tell the Easter Bunny on Facebook and Instagram or Don't Tell the E-A-S one on Twitter. And for emails, you can use don't tell the Easter Bunny at gmail.com. See, See you, you next time. time.